All right, well, good morning again, everyone. I'm so glad that you are here with us today as we're gonna continue this Room for Doubt series. It's been an incredible conversation so, bar, so far about the, the questions that really prohibit people from following Jesus, right? And I don't know if any of these questions are identifying like they're the questions that you are asking or maybe they're the questions that people around you are asking, but it's so important for us to cover them because the reality is, is that doubt is real and that if we're honest, each and every one of us have had doubt at some point, right? I know that I have and have had those moments where we just wonder, is, is this all real, right? Is, is this all real? Is this, is this reality? And as we kind of move through this, it's important for us to understand that we don't, we should not doubt with doubters, right? I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. We don't want to, we don't want to doubt with doubters, people that can fuel the fire of our doubt. We want to doubt with people who can help us, help us to to find the answers. That's why I'm so glad that you're here with us today as we walk through this. My name's Matt. Uh, I've been the high school pastor here at Mount Pleasant for the past six years, but it's always my pleasure to be up here to share a message with you. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Andrew opened this discussion talking about the question of all questions, right? Does God really exist? And that's something that we all have to wrestle with. We all have to come to our own conclusion. Does Does God really exist? And with that foundation, last week, Pastor Chris talked to us about the the reality that the Bible is inspired. It truly is the Word of God. It is reliable. And I really encourage you, if you haven't, if you weren't here last week, you didn't hear that message, you need to go back and listen to that because that's really the foundation for for what we're going to talk about today. Because I believe that what we're going to do today All all those things lead us to the conversation that we're going to have today. And I truly believe that it's the most important question that we can ask and answer. It's this. Is Jesus the Son of God? Now, on the outside, you kind of see if you've been around church for a long time, maybe that doesn't sound like a question that you really need to ask. But the reality is, is that Christians call Jesus the Son of God. So is that true? And what does it mean? That's what we're going to do this morning. Um... There are so many different perspectives about Jesus, right? I mean, I don't know if you spend time talking to people at work or, or people that you run into. People have so many different views on who Jesus is. Some say he's a moral leader. He's just a good teacher. To some, Jesus was a revolutionary. Um, even the Muslims say that Jesus was a prophet. I mean, everybody has their opinion on Jesus, but none of that really gets to the heart of the question. Because when we ask if Jesus is the Son of God, what we're really asking is, is he divine? Is there something special about him? And, and how we answer that determines our response to God's existence and to his word. And so this is significant. So how do we, how do, we do this? I'm glad you're thinking that, because that's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to answer this question, and we're going to examine the evidence. That's what we're going to do today. So the question that we're going to start with is this. What is the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God? Right? When you have any conversation about faith and these type of things, we're looking for what's the proof? What, what are the, what's the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God? But I need to back up first. In order to answer that question, we've got to ask another question. There's going to be a lot of questions today, okay? We have to ask another question. The other question that we have to ask that we have to start with is this. Did Jesus ever claim to be the Son of God? Because that's significant. A lot of people will point to this and say, this is an argument they'll make. And they'll say, listen, Jesus never really even claimed that. 
Like, we've kind of we've misunderstood what Jesus was about and what he said. And, and he never really, I mean, he taught a lot of things. He said a lot of things. He did some stuff. But he never really claimed that. And that, my friends, would be a huge misunderstanding of who Jesus is, what he said, and who he claimed to be. So, there's this iconic moment in Jesus' life where he takes his disciples. He takes all of his, his disciples and they head off to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It's this pagan city filled with just weird worship and wicked things going on. And he takes them there and they're on top of this rock and he looks at them. And you're probably familiar with this exchange. He looks at them and says, who do people say the son of man is? Right? And the son of man's another term for son of God. And so Jesus is saying, who do because there's a lot of speculation about who he is and, and the things that he's doing. And so he says, who do, what are people saying? What are, the, what are they saying about me? And you know the disciples' responses. They, they say, well, you know, some people say you're like John the Baptist. Well, that doesn't make sense because he was just here. And other people say you're like Elijah. You're like the, you come back and you're going to do some stuff. And other people just say you're like you're just another prophet. And so they have all these answers, all these things that are speculating about who Jesus is. And it's in this moment that Jesus kind of leans in and he asks a question that maybe you could see coming, but he says this, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Okay, so now it's personal. It's not just about, well, what are other people saying? Listen, guys, friends, I want to know who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? What do you believe about me? And it's in this moment that Peter steps in and says this, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, he's claiming that Jesus is divine. And what's even more significant than that is Jesus' response because he affirms Peter's answer. Jesus does claim to be the Son of God, but okay, listen, that's just one time, right? So maybe we're misunderstanding or we're not reading this situation correctly, but that's not the only time that this happens. I'm going to go through a series of things to show you without a doubt that Jesus does in fact claim this. John, the disciple John, writes his own gospel, and he kind of, he, he talks about this, and this is what one story that he tells. He says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even claiming, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so you, they wanted to kill Jesus. I mean, they, they were so fierce they wanted to kill him, not because he healed people on the Sabbath, but because he put himself on the same level as God. Now, write down in your notes, if you're taking notes, or maybe if you have your Bible app open, th this is in there. I want you to go maybe later and read verses 19 through 30, because then you can read a little bit more exactly what Jesus said here in this moment and to understand the whole situation. But I want to move on because it doesn't stop there. John records another incident. This one's a little bit more hostile. We like, we like these stories because they get interesting. This one's a little hostile, but John records this story, and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he makes another bold claim in John chapter 10, verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. Now that seems significant, but we got to take a step back and understand exactly what's happening here. Because this word one, if we do a little study in, in the Greek language, we learn that this one is written in what's called 
neuter. Now that sounds weird, and I don't want this to be weird, but it's not written in masculine, how you would expect it to be written in the Greek language. And so what Jesus is not saying in this moment is, I and the Father are the same person. That's not what he's saying. That's not what Jesus is claiming. He's, he's saying, I and the Father are of the same substance. We are of the same essence. Now, as English readers, that, that's really hard to understand exactly what that means. But for the people listening to Jesus, or maybe the people reading it um, a, a couple hundred years later when the Bible was, was put together, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming to say. And that's what makes what happens next so interesting. In verse 31, this is how it goes. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, sometimes we've got to read between the lines of what's happening in Scripture, right? But if, if you look at what is happening here, people are getting very, very furious with Jesus because he's a nice guy. And he heals people, and he feeds the hungry. No, that's not what's happening. They're getting furious with Jesus because he's claiming to be more than a man. He's claiming to be God, and so they want to kill him. He claimed to be the Son of God, and this doesn't convince you. Look at how the disciple Mark, as he writes his gospel, in Mark chapter 14, he says this. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, at the end of Jesus' life, when, before it's all said and done, just ask bluntly, are you the Messiah? Are you the, the Son of the Most High? And he steps in and says, I am. And there you have it. I think we can make a pretty strong case, which I think is our, our first point, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus, he claimed to be divine. No more stories about uh, what Jesus said or didn't say and that this isn't true. I mean, Jesus claimed to be divine, something special. That's why the author, Josh McDowell, kind of summarizes it like this. I love how he says this. He says, Jesus is either Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. I mean, you got to pick one. He either is who he says he is or he flat out lied about it or he's taking crazy pills. I mean, there's, it's got to be one of those answers. A little bit more sophisticated than that, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You could shut him up for fool. You could spit at him and kill him as demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. You see, being a self-proclaimed anything is easy, right? I, I could stand up here and tell you I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the best at this, and I could self-proclaim anything. Now, how many of you guys have watched maybe the TV show The Office? Okay, by laughs, I assume you know, some of you have watched it, right? And so uh, The Office is based around like this paper company, a very exciting paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where the boss, Michael Scott, is, you know, he runs the show. And he's known for being over the top about everything. Um, he makes bad decisions time and again. He embarrasses people. 
But he's the boss, and uh, probably not the best boss, right? Does a lot of silly things, but that's what makes the show funny. That's why it's kind of ironic that in one episode, he walks into his office, and he tells everyone that he bought himself a mug that says, world's best boss, right? And that's, listen, that's probably not something, if you're the boss, that you buy for yourself, right? You let an employee buy that for you. Maybe, maybe somebody close by said, man, you're great. You know, I want you to have this. If you buy that for yourself, that's not, that doesn't really mean a whole lot, right? Because being self-proclaimed anything, it's easy. It's easy to do that. You could say anything that you want about yourself. That's why we can't stop with what Jesus said about himself. We have to continue this investigation of the evidence. That's because Jesus wasn't the only person that claimed to be the Messiah. He wasn't. I don't know if you've done a whole lot of study on this, but before Jesus, after Jesus, I mean, there are people that claim to be the Son of God. Even after Jesus, there are people that claim to be the reincarnation of Jesus. If you've lived long enough, you've probably seen some of those people on the news. He's not the only person that has ever said this. So what makes him different? What makes the Jesus that we read about in the Bible different than anybody else who says, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah, I'm divine, I'm special? The question that we have to ask is, did Jesus back it up? Did he, did he back up what he said? Did he back up his claims with solid evidence? And that's where we're going to land today. So we're going to get a little academic for a while, okay? But I really hope that what we do here next is helpful for you. Whether you walk into this place today and say, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but I'm not, guess I'm not really sure why. Or maybe you're talking to people and you kind of need some help with how to explain what you believe and why you believe it. I hope that this is helpful for you because I have four things. I'm going to call them four proofs that show that Jesus backed up his claim to be divine. Okay? The first one is this. Proof number one are the Messianic prophecies. We talked a little bit about this last week, but it's, it's significant. It's important. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus and his kingdom. No mere human is able, is capable to fulfill all of these prophecies. Some of these prophecies demand a miraculous element. In fact, the prophecies are so detailed and so far removed in time, you have to be able to conclude that it is not by coincidence that Jesus would have fulfilled these. I want to run through some of these very, very quickly and talk to you about them. One, some of the prophecies were the Messiah would be born of a woman, Genesis chapter 3. The Messiah would come through Abraham, Genesis chapter 22. He would be born in Bethlehem, that's Micah chapter 5, very location specific. He would have a forerunner, that's Malachi chapter 3, that would be John the Baptist. His ministry would begin in Galilee, that's Isaiah chapter 9, that's very location specific. He would be tender and compassionate. Isaiah chapter 40 and 42, talking about his character, who he was. He would work miracles, Isaiah chapter 35. He would endure intense suffering, Psalm chapter 22. He would be betrayed by a friend, that's specific, Isaiah, or Psalm 41. He would be smitten on the cheek, Micah chapter 5, very, very specific. The Christ would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, very, very, very specific. Specific, you can find that in Zechariah chapter 11, and the Messiah would be raised from the dead in Psalm chapter 16. That's 12. There are over 300 statements in the Old Testament that, listen, 
that are in the Old Testament. These weren't added in. I mean, you could carbon date these documents to show they were written, all of them, hundreds of years before Jesus lived, some of them thousands of years before Jesus lived, that every single one of them was fulfilled. None of them were wrong. None of them were inaccurate about who Jesus was. I have a book in my library that's called All the Messianic Prophecies in the Bible, and it is, it is thick, and I have not read it all, okay? But listen, this is a significant, significant thing. Is it, is it a coincidence? Now, as I was trying to think about this, I was trying to think, how can I relate this to you? Because we can say, oh, there's prophecies, there's all these prophecies, and it just sounds like, yeah, yeah, I, I believe that. But what does that, what does that look like? And I, read across, I came across a story that People Magazine reported back in 1979. That's a long time ago for me. It may not for all of you. But there was a story that came out about these, these, twin, these twin boys that were separated at three weeks old. Okay? And for 37 and a half years, they did not know of each other's existence. And when they were 39, they met each other. And let's just say there were some coincidences. At three weeks old, when they were separated, both of their adoptive parents, not knowing each other, named those boys Jim. Kind of a coincidence, right? Well, maybe it's not a coincidence because they're twins. They kind of grew up liking the same things. Their parents said they loved, they were into math and carpentry. Both of them pursued uh, careers in security, right? So again, a little bit coincidence, but it gets a little weirder. It's going to get weird for a second, okay? So both of these Jims married Linda. Not the same Linda, different Lindas, okay? But a women named Linda. And both of them divorced Linda. And then both of them married Betty. Different Bettys, okay? But that's just a coincidence. And then both of them had sons, and they named their sons James. I mean, how many things have to fall in line correctly for all of that to line up for these twin boys to have identical-looking lives Coincidence, right? Fascinating, maybe improbable, but here's the deal. This doesn't even come close, not even close to touching the amount of detail and prediction that it would take to make Jesus the Messiah by coincidence. That's not the way the story is written. These prophecies point to the divinity of Jesus. The second one. I'm going to go through number two and number three very quickly. The second one, second proof, proof number two, the sinless life. If God is holy and if Jesus is God's son, then surely Jesus would back that up by living a life that was completely free from sin. Jesus' enemies knew this, right? They, they, they knew this and they followed him around for years looking for just a mistake here or there, some moral or ethical inconsistency, maybe just a small little human mistake where they can say, ha, you messed up. But they couldn't. They couldn't find any of it. In fact, uh, what we know is that they, these opponents, they paid false witnesses to go out and to make up stories about Jesus and what he's done so that they could eventually um, crucify him. And Jesus, knowing this, and in this moment, I, I love how John records this because Jesus knows this, and I think he just kind of throws it back in their face. I like that version of Jesus. He says this, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I mean, come on. Any of you, can you prove me guilty of sin? And the reality is, is they couldn't. Jesus lived an entire life without anyone having to be able to present a claim that he did anything wrong. In fact, there are no other religious leaders in the world 
who have ever even made the claim to be sinless. His extraordinary life backed up his extraordinary claim to be the Son of God, and his sinless life proved to be evidence, a strong indicator that his claim was true. Listen, on my best day, on my best day, I still sin. I don't know about you, but I still sin. It's hard. Jesus went his entire life without everyone, anyone, being able to claim that he was not perfect. Proof number three are the miracles. So in addition to fulfilling the prophecies of a divine Messiah and uh, being sinless, Jesus did a variety of miracles. We know these. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He healed people. I mean, he even raised people from the dead. And he pointed at all of these things as evidence that backed up his claims. If we go back to John chapter 10, where we were a little earlier, Jesus says this in verse 37 and 38, told his listeners this, don't believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand, know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Over and over, Jesus performed miracles, miraculous signs, not to impress people, not to draw them closer to him, but to reveal to everyone who he was, that he was and is the Son of God. Even the Jewish historian Josephus, this guy recorded Jewish history. He was not a follower of Jesus. Even, even he, in his works, cites Jesus as a miracle worker. I mean, in any academic circle, we know that people, I mean, nobody spends any time trying to say that, well, Jesus never really lived. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that proved that Jesus lived. And there's a lot of evidence that people outside of our faith say there was something special about him. I mean, this guy worked miracles, and those miracles pointed to his divinity. One miracle in particular is where we're going to spend the rest of our time because it's so significant. It's our proof number four. It's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus pointed to his coming uh, resurrection as the ultimate evidence, the ultimate evidence of his claims. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus tells his, his disciples, he says, I will give you one sign. It'll be the sign of the prophet Jonah. And it sounds like, well, what does that mean, right? And so Jesus explains and says, listen, as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus was pointing to his death and his resurrection as the ultimate evidence to back up all his other claims. In fact, I love how the Apostle Paul puts it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes like this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, if Jesus did not come out of the grave, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's how important the resurrection is. If it's not true, and you're in trouble. Listen, if someone can predict their own death and resurrection, wouldn't you just be compelled to believe and hear the other things they have to say? This is what we have to deal with. This is the most important subject. This is the most important topic. I believe the resurrection is the center of our faith. It doesn't hang on anything else. Listen, <laughs> the, Bible, the Bible was not put together until 300 years after Jesus lived. The church was most flourished in those years before we ever had a Bible told us so. It was because they believed that the resurrection happened. We have to be able to respond to that. The reason that you have a Bible is because of the resurrection. 
Without it, is there any reason to report what happened in the Gospels? Is there any reason to write the letters? Is there any reason to say anything else if Jesus didn't come out of that grave? The reason that you have a Bible in your hands today is because of the resurrection. And so the reality is, is we have to ask the question, what's the evidence? If that's the word that we're going to use today, what is the evidence that Jesus walked out of that grave? What's the proof? How do we know that this happened? So I'm going to give you some more things to write down, okay? Uh, But again, I think these can be very, very helpful. If you want to talk about the resurrection, if you want to know with certainty, if you want to believe this and talk to people about this, this can be an easy format for you. I want to call it the three E's because they all start with E. I'm going to go through some of these kind of quickly. Is it true? The first E is the tomb was empty. We know this. First women discover it, then men discover it. Universally, it was accepted that the tomb was empty. Don't listen to other people that are going to tell you, well, that that was a story that was made up. It's not made up. That's not how it's written. That's not what we know. There are no other reports that the tomb was not empty. It was explaining why the tomb was empty. We have an empty tomb. In fact, the religious leaders, they bribed and paid the guards who were guarding the tomb to make up a story. You could read this in Matthew chapter 28, where they say, listen, tell people that the disciples came while you were sleeping at night and stole the body. Why? Because there is an empty tomb, and there's no good reason that we should have an empty tomb. The Jews, they wanted him dead. They were the one that got, that got this whole thing started. The Romans, they executed him. They wanted him dead, and his disciples were hiding in a room without any means to do anything about it. The reality is, is we have an empty tomb, and we have to do something with that. No one disputes it. The next thing is this. We have eyewitnesses. Listen, this... This is so important. This is so important for us to understand. The early believers and the disciples did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead just because the tomb was empty or they couldn't find the body. They believed in the resurrection because they saw him. They saw Jesus. They talked to Jesus. They ate with Jesus. You can see this in Luke chapter 24. They were eyewitnesses to what happened. In fact, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at once after he rose from the dead. Over 500 people saw Jesus risen from the, bed, from the dead. Now, don't you think if that wasn't true, that word would have got out? I mean, don't you think that if that was not true, I mean, in that setting of 500, that there was at least one middle schooler there that would have let it all out, that it wasn't true? But this is what we learn. Would it be more likely... That the rise of Christianity in the first century, which again began with a couple people, maybe a hundred people that were actively following Jesus, when he died on the cross, shortly after it blossomed to thousands and it spread across the entire region. Would it be more likely that that happened because of some fabricated lie or because something happened? Something happened. Something happened that took 12 disciples who were hiding in a room out into the streets and into the temple courts proclaiming a risen Savior. Something happened because they saw it with their own eyes. Thomas doubted, did not believe until he saw Jesus in front of his face. James, the own brother of Jesus. Listen, James, his story is fascinating. James didn't believe who Jesus was. I mean, he was his brother. He's like, dude, you're my brother. You're not the Messiah. Like, I I know you. James didn't believe in who Jesus was until he saw his brother die on the cross, and then he saw him resurrected, then James became the leader, 
the leader of the church in Jerusalem because he saw his risen Savior. Paul, a fire-breathing Pharisee, filled his entire life with obeying God and his word and trying to eliminate Christians, never turns his life around unless he encounters a risen Jesus. The church flourished because the people who saw Jesus risen from the dead starting talking about it. They started talking about it. In the court of law, you need two people, right? You need two people that see you do something wrong and then you're guilty. That, that's how it works. And here's the deal. I, I, read, I told you that, that Paul kind of claims that he appeared to over 500 people at once. This is, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After that, he appeared to more than, more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Look at this. Most of them are still living. Paul says, okay, I'm going to preach to you. But if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're still alive. They saw Jesus. They're over there. They're in Ephesus. They're in Philippi. We saw the guy risen from the dead. This is what happened. This is why the church flourished. It's because we have eyewitnesses that saw Jesus risen from the dead. The third E. We have an empty tomb. We have eyewitnesses. We know, and this is what backs the other ones up, we know that the accounts of the resurrection were early. This is where some people want to turn to and say, you know, this is a, this is a lie. This, is, this was made up, but we know that that's not true. As followers of Jesus realized what had happened, they immediately started telling people about it. At first, their accounts were verbal, and then they started being written down. Last week, Chris talked to us about the evidence, the evidence of how the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were early accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he said. But one of the very earliest creeds of the church, the very earliest creed, the thing that they would repeat over and over and over, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've read parts of it already. But here's the deal with this. We can date this, and scholars say that this, this creed dates back to no more than five years after the resurrection. In fact, some scholars are able to point this back and say this happened, this was around months, months, within months of the resurrection. Regardless of any of that, nobody in any academic circle will tell you otherwise that this letter, this piece of document that we have that Paul wrote, was written in A.D. 55. Okay, so within a reasonable distance, this is what it says. Paul says this, for what I received, I pass on to you as for first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the other 12. And it goes on and it talks a little about some more things, but here's the deal. That part there right at the beginning, this Jesus was, 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 was killed, he was buried, he was raised. He was killed, he was buried, he was raised. This is the creed. This is the thing that they said over and over and over again. That's why Paul says to them, of what I have heard, I passed on to you as the first importance that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried and he was raised. This is the creed that was within the church months after Jesus' resurrection. It was not, listen to me, it was not a fabricated legend. So many people will say, you know, hundreds of years later, people just said that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not really what happened. Listen, anybody who says that has not done their research. That is, that is, that is incorrect to believe that because we have proof. We have the evidence. James Dunn, who's a British New Testament scholar, says this. This tradition, what we just read, can, we can be entirely confident was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus's death. The basic formula for our faith, for the resurrection, goes back to within months. Maybe even more important than that, 
we read in Acts chapter 2 that the very first public preaching about the resurrection comes from Peter 50 days after the resurrection in Jerusalem, the city where Jesus was crucified. It's not a legend. It's not made up. And it's happening early. These considerations obliterate the notion that the resurrection of Jesus was a mere legend. That's not true. The resurrection is and always will be the centerpiece of our faith. It doesn't hang on anything else. It doesn't hang on proving that the Bible is true or anything else. It hangs on proving that Jesus walked out of that grave alive. And when we believe that, when we understand that, everything changes. Now, here's the deal. My wife is a teacher. And so uh, every year around Christmas time, she comes home with all these gifts, right? It's great. You get all these gifts. Gift cards, mugs, um, hot chocolate, um, you know, all, uh, Christmas decorations, stuff that we'll put in a white elephant gift exchange a couple weeks later. Uh, all these different things. She comes home with all these different things from her students. And one of the things that she always comes home with is, is chocolate. Now, I've been known to have a problem. Some call it an addiction to chocolate. Well, we gotta say, chocolate's good, okay? And, 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 and I like it. And so she comes home with this chocolate. This is last year. And it, it looks, looks delicious, right? But it's her chocolate. It's her chocolate. And so she, she puts it in the pantry and uh, she puts it up high where the kids can't get it and it just sits there. And it sits there. And it's there for a while. I mean, how long does something have to sit in the pantry and it's not eaten before it's free game for other people to eat, right? I mean, seriously. So it's in there for like a month, two months. And at some point, okay, so anyway, so one day she comes home, she comes home and she realizes that the chocolate is missing, like she was watching it or something, right? And, and she looks at me and she, she says, did you eat my chocolate? And I looked at her, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just as surprised as she was that the chocolate was missing. Now, here's the deal. I think the evidence in this situation is a little foggy, right? I mean, you can deduct things and like, you think, well, I had chocolate. Matt likes chocolate. Now the chocolate's missing. Put it together. I think the evidence is foggy. I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence that I was the culprit for the missing chocolates. But regardless of that, I was blamed and convicted for the missing chocolate. Now, when we talk about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, for Jesus being the Son of God, I think that we have more doubt that he is not divine than that he is divine. The reality is this, is that Jesus proved to be the Son of God. He proved to be the Son of God through all of these things that we looked at. But here's where we have to go, and I gotta do this quickly. What do we do with this? Like, what do we do? What does this mean for us today? What are we supposed to do with this information? Because we spend a lot of time proving and talking and, and doing these things, but I want you to walk out of these doors and say, well, what do, I, what do I do with that information? And I hope that today, in this room, maybe watching online, that there are people that are compelled to respond to this truth by saying, you know what? Maybe today I need to accept him as my Savior. Maybe today you need to accept him as your savior. Maybe you need to say, you know, I've been on the sidelines for long enough and I'm here at church and I come because my wife makes me come, but I've never really figured out if I believe this or I want to be in. But maybe today you say the evidence is overwhelming 
And the reality is that Jesus was divine. He claimed to be divine. He proved it. What do I do with that? Maybe today you need to accept him as your savior and say, I am in. You'll have to have all the answers. You'll have to understand everything. You'll have to be able to defend the Bible front and back for you to be able to respond to who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Once you come to the realization that Jesus is the Christ, you should respond to him and accept him as your savior. We've talked a lot about the story of Lee Strobel, right? The journalist, the atheist who turned his life around. This is what he says. Finally, I reached my verdict. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus was clear and convincing. That's why I repented of my sins and received him as my forgiver and leader on November 8th, 1981. Ultimately, I would see my morality, worldview, marriage, and even my career transformed as a result. If that's you today, I hope that you feel compelled to respond to Jesus. But here's the deal. I know that most of you in here, well, lean in just for a second. I know that most of you in here, you've already done that. You've already accepted Jesus as your Savior. And I, my fear is that your takeaway from this moment would say, you know what? I've already done that. Check. I'm good. And that's some good information I can share with my friends that don't follow Jesus. And while that's a perfectly acceptable response to this, there's nothing wrong with that, and I hope that you do that. It cannot end there. It cannot end there. Maybe today you need to make him the Lord of your life. If Jesus is the Son of God, you not only need to respond to him as your Savior, but you also need to make him your Lord. The reality is that Jesus already is Lord. It's responding to his Lordship with submission. It means you have to yield to the will and the control of Jesus in your life. Church, you cannot accept Jesus as your, as your Savior and neglect to honor him as your Lord. It's not how it works. It doesn't make sense, and it represents a false understanding of who Jesus is and what he wants you to do. So some of us, we got to realign our lives around Christ. We have to realign our decisions around Jesus no longer. No longer can we say Jesus first except for when it comes to my money. Jesus first except for when it comes to my entertainment preferences. Jesus first except for when it comes to X, Y, Z, whatever it is for you. We all need to take an evaluation and strive to make him the Lord of your life. And here's why. I believe that when we do this, when you do this, you are better. Everything changes. Your relationships change. Your marriages can change. Your parenting style changes. Everything changes when Jesus is not just your Savior, but he's also your Lord. Now, I don't know what, how you walked in here today, what you thought about this whole conversation, but if you had doubt in who Jesus is, who Jesus was, what he claimed to be, I hope that you can clearly see that he claimed to be divine, that he backed it up and he proved to be divine, and that when we respond to him as our Savior and as our Lord, we live differently. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Father, I want nothing more than in this moment for all of us to recognize who you are. That you sent a son to this earth, to the cross, to die in our place so that we could have the opportunity to spend an eternity with you because he resurrected from the dead. 
God, we believe that you are a good God. And my, my only prayer in this moment is that you would help us to respond. Whether we've, we've never responded and this would be the first time that we've done it, or maybe it's the first time in a long time, but we respond to you because the proof is there, the evidence is there that you are the Messiah. You are the one that can make things right. And so God, I just invite all of us to allow our hearts to be softened, to respond to the truth of your word. Be here in this moment. We love you. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.